Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Uri Korleanchik, and we're going to talk about his new book, Noblesse Oblige, as well as gaming matters and other things that he's done. Um, so, Uri, why don't you introduce yourself, and then we can talk about your new book. Uh, okay. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, secondly, uh, so... Um, uh, this book is my, my first uh, novel. Uh, I've previously uh, only written uh, role-playing game materials and some uh, short storage, uh, stories, which I gathered in an anthology called uh, Tales from Israeli Storyteller. So that was like my first attempt at fiction. Um, my uh, day job is uh, playing uh, with uh, kids in schools and community centers as an after-school activity. Uh, so ever since I started working the job, um, I've written uh, a lot less for games, unfortunately, but I do have some uh, products in mind that will be more aimed for uh, children. Okay, so um, would you like to talk about the book now? Yeah, or? yeah. Why don't we? Why don't we get into the? Well, actually, before we do, I just wanted to ask you: Did you? Um, you said that you 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 play a lot of role playing games in your day job. Yes. So is that 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 is uh, part of the activities that you that you're involved in there? That is the activity, actually. That is, oh, that is the activity. Okay, so so because because you gave me a very high number. I, I remember I was I was almost I was boasting that I was in like three games a week or something mm -hmm. to you, and and I think you said that you were in ten games, and so that that yes, uh, these games are short. Each session is uh, ninety minutes long. Uh, we have sessions that take place during school time and uh, in the evening. Um, and uh, the players are the, the youngest are second graders, and the oldest uh, I had are seventh uh, graders. So okay. there are also different uh, age groups. Yeah. Uh, with the younger kids, I play like a simplified versions of Dungeons and Dragons, and the older ones are like all sorts of stuff. I've done Shadowrun, Vampire, uh, Traveler, Star, uh, Star Wars. And and, uh, and and before we get to the book too, I just wanted to ask: Do they do, have you found that they they take well to the the regular RPGs, or do you use the? Uh, I know that there's a lot of games out there that are designed with children in mind. Do you take any of that material or any techniques from those kinds of games? Um, no, I did not because uh, honestly, I'm a little critical of those games because I'm going to say something sounds really strange, but they infantilize children. Mm -hmm. Children. They are not as childish as uh, some of the books assume. And children do want to be badass, to be awesome, to do tough things. They don't want to just be chasing fairies and, you know, uh, finding magic mountain and stuff like that. So I do think that children should play slightly darker stuff. Like if you look at almost all fairy tales, uh, they're quite dark, even, uh, even their modern versions. No, that's true. And I, I started playing D and D. I think in third grade. So I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's manageable. I think for a child. Yes, and um, you go out, you keep orc ass, you get treasure, you gain levels, you defeat stronger monsters. Uh, there's there is no reason to do something which is like a, a special child. I mean, these are not ki kindergarten children. And uh, and so why don't we, I? I definitely want to return to that topic, but I, I would like Absolutely. to discuss the book. Um, you know, again, the title is uh, Noble, uh, Noblesse Oblige. And yes. can you tell us about the, the basic premise and and the tone, too? I was very interested in, in the tone of the book. Absolutely. Uh, I'll actually start by uh, telling a little anecdote about how this book was born. 
so a friend and I were just uh, sort of throwing ideas back and forth, and we'll just throwing random names into the air and random details. And then I looked at the uh, conversation. It was in Google, so like I opened the Google chat, and I pasted the conversation onto the sheet, and I started thinking, what can I do with that thing? Because it looked very interesting. And I sort of starting to uh, basically role-play with myself, like being both the GM of the player and uh, like challenging the heroine and coming with solutions. And sort of, I didn't know I was writing a novel. And after like several months, I realized I was actually working in a novel. So, okay, so uh, it started out as a role-playing thing almost. and then it Sort became... of with myself, yes. And uh, so this book, uh, it's, it's written practically in real time. There is almost no uh, time passage. It uh, the entire book happens in just one small uh, location, and uh, this is the premise. There is uh, like in the future, uh, the corporations basically evolve uh, into royal houses. They have aristocratic titles. They have like extra legal uh, powers. Uh, some of them actually own portions of the sun, po um, uh, entire satellites. Uh, that future is more technologically advanced. Ours, there is no faster than light travel. So, uh, like, uh, getting to Neptune will take you many months. And uh, one princess uh, from a very big corporation, uh, she feels bad about one of the wars her father is involved in, and she wants to um, find some place for the refugees created by the war to go to. And she uh, comes on a secret visit to a very distant uh, planetoid on the edge of the system, uh, where she meets uh, Jerem Baron, who tells her that, uh, I kind of lie to you, um, and accept any refugees, uh, and this isn't like a party in your honor, this is an auction, and the item on sale is you. Uh, but you can participate in it as well, so maybe if you offer me something good enough, um, you, you, like, uh, you can buy yourself. And uh, other guests are like the worst villains uh, in the system, you have like a uh, Chinese uh, space pirate, uh, you have like an infamous Russian uh, aristocrat who is like a brilliant duelist, uh, you have uh, French poisoners, uh, you have a Japanese uh, samurai, it's a corporate samurai. And uh, the verse is like, there are 24 hours, you can do whatever you want, and after this time passes, I will declare the winner of the auction. And the book uh, covers these 24 hours, and how like uh, different alliances form, break, and there are all sorts of intrigues. Uh, the princess uh, tries to find allies, she tries to um, uh, maybe uh, save herself in some way, because she's basically alone. She, she's not going to get rescued, she can only help herself. And the princess is the main character? Yes. And it's and so it sounds kind of, it's science fiction-y, right? There's a, uh, there's a it's, science... Uh, yes, it's very light science fiction, it's uh, mostly humorous. Um, it's about as science fiction-y as uh, Star Wars, or uh, you know, a, a bit more, more like Dune, perhaps. Okay, so... yeah, no, Dune kind of leapt to mind, actually. I mean... Partly from the title, but also the the, the opening passage, kind of. Sort uh, of. If Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was uh, taking place in the same universe as Dune, mm -hmm. this is more or less the book that he would have uh, received. Okay. Okay. And uh, and I also I also noticed that there was a review that compared it to Terry Pratchett meets um, Douglas Adams, and so was there was there a conscious attempt at humor, or is it uh, do you, is is the tone is, is, when you say light tone? Does it is it a humorous light or is it light just you know because it's space adventure? Um, 
there wasn't a, a conscious attempt at humor, but uh, like when, when I'm running a game, I always mix uh, jokes with the game, even if it's like a serious and dark subject matter. Uh -huh. uh, you still want to uh, say something witty or amusing, so uh, most of the humor uh, doesn't come from the setting isn't humorous, but um, the interaction of the characters, they often say like funny things, they try to outwit one another, uh, some of them are just funny people. So that is the source of the humor. The setting itself uh, isn't a joke. Okay, it's not, okay. It's not realistic either, but uh, it's not meant to, it's like, uh, like this world, the setting itself is funny. Mm. Like just the word as it is, it's funny. I didn't uh, to go in that direction. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, and who the the publisher is uh, Wordfire Press, right? And yes. so is this is this available uh, on Amazon and at bookstores? Is it something that people can easily obtain? Yes, uh, all the best bookstores, as they like to say in ads. Okay. Actually, the pub, uh, the publisher uh, is uh, Kevin Anderson, and he's the person who's writing all the new uh, Dune books. Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed that, and that was another th another Dune connection. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I just submitted the book to this publisher because I saw, okay, they published the new Dune books. I, I love Dune, so let's try them. Okay. All right. And and how is how has the res the reaction been so far? I know it, oh, it just came out. It came out like what on the twenty eighth or something. So. Um... Uh yeah. Well, uh, so far it's been read like by a dozen people, maybe. So I don't know uh, about the reaction of the uh, masses, but the people who did really like it, um, the book is written uh, purposely in a very obsolete uh, language because it's like it's in the future, but the culture is more similar to the 19th uh, century. Yes. I use like slightly obsolete language uh, on purpose. And some people said it takes a bit of time getting used to, but I hope it's fun. No, I I noticed that reading the intro, or not the intro, but the fir the the first chapter, and it uh, it, you you it definitely it, it it struck me as old timey. I didn't I didn't quite know exactly what point in history you were shooting for, but mm -hmm. but that definitely makes sense. I didn't find it that difficult, but I used to read a lot of older books when I was young, so maybe maybe that's part of it. Um, but no, I, it shouldn't be difficult. Uh, just uh, it's different. I don't think it's a difficult language. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's it's got its own. It's definitely got a style to it. It definitely has a style to it. Um, and uh, what uh, is this? Just a is this like a one-off book? Or are you intending to do a follow-up? Or actually, I want to do a sequel, but it will be very different. Uh huh. Um, I just I don't want to address the my idea for the sequel because it will be a spoiler for the uh, first book. Okay. Okay. I understand. Um, the, the, the only thing I can say is that it will be the same uh, universe. And what? What? Uh, I mean, I know that there was the the backstory that uh, that, that prompted you to uh, to want to write this book in particular. But what prompted you to want to get into uh, to writing novels and stories? And what what were some of your major sources of inspiration? Well, I read a lot. Like I read all the time. When I'm not reading, I'm listening to audiobooks. Uh, I'm a great consumer of audiobooks. Uh, so I'm, I really love literature, um, so I can't like really point at a specific inspiration. Uh, I also read a lot of nonfiction. So uh, like in the book, I use uh, a lot of anecdotes that like they sound completely insane, but those are things that actually happened. Um, so uh, I would say that nonfiction is actually a bigger inspiration than a specific kind of fiction. 
but if you wanted to point specific novels, it would be Dune, uh, James Bond, uh, because there's like, lots of gadgets and mm. all sorts of strange uh, devices and uh, attempts to fool one another. Uh, Dune, which we mention like every five minutes yeah, yeah. Uh, in this conversation. Now, do you, are you a fan of the entire Dune series? Or are you a fan of like the first three books? Like, what's your uh, what's the extent of your Dune fandom? Uh, it's kind of goes by degrees. Like, I love the first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next books in the series are like okay, and the new books I enjoy. Them. They're great books. They're mm-hmm. very enjoyable, but they sort of they don't have that degree of like mythological, almost religious uh, potency. It's yeah. great science fiction, and they are very uh, interesting. They, they are full of very cool ideas, but they're not as uh, potent from a religious uh, standpoint. Yeah. Like June, it's it's like it's like the Bible, you know? It's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that fir- the first book especially, you get that, it has that, that weight to it. Um, but uh, I would say, that for me, it's the first three. The first three are really the the... At the at the center of it for me, um, what about? Yeah, but the time they go to Chapter House Dune, it's like it's got so there are like so many details. The book is like it's, it, the history becomes a burden at this yeah. point. Well, that happens in a lot of series. A lot of series they kind of collapse under their own weight, as the, like you said, they get more details and more, and and it just kind of it becomes this this anchor that the that the that the mm-hmm. story is tied to. Um, uh, what about? I know you wrote a um, uh, was a collection of short stories, the Israeli short uh, storyteller. Uh, uh, Tales from Israeli Storyteller. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know what, what was the story behind that book? Uh, so um, I like to travel a lot. Like uh, I used to go on all sorts of hikes and trips every week. And uh, one time, like when we were in Qumran, Qumran are uh, the hills where they found the Quran scrolls, the hidden scrolls. So it's like it's a hill full of uh, castles with a friend there, and uh, yeah, like we just started throwing ideas back and forth, and I said, "Oh, yeah, there's like there could be like a cool fantasy story. There's caves, there's these ancient scrolls. It just it screams uh, fantasy." Hmm. So after that, like every time that I'd go to a new place, I would like take out notes about like some story that could play state take place there, and I thought it would be really cool to write a book which uh, could serve as a travel guide because like all the locations are described very precisely. If I mention a certain cave in a certain location, there's actually a cave there. If I mention like a ruined crusader castle um, in the forest, if you go to that forest, there will be a ruined crusader castle there. Um, but the uh, characters are completely fantastical. So there's like a uh, sort of takes place um, in Kumranza said or in uh, Beron, which is like a holy mountain for uh, Jews. It's like the wellspring of the Kabbalah. So, it, like I described the place exactly as it is, there are all these ancient graves, uh, these, they're like the tombstones of um, Jewish holy men, uh, but then, you know, you have golem, uh, you have genies, you have ghouls, uh, all sorts of creatures from uh, Jewish and Islamic uh, culture. And the stories, they, they are connected thematically, but they aren't, they, they don't form a single uh, narrative. Okay. Uh, they reference one another, sometimes they deal with the same characters. Um, but they don't like each story isn't a continuation of the previous story and and that one is, st- is still available as well right yes okay and uh, I can I can put links to this at the bottom of the uh, the, the description below uh, on the podcast so I'll, uh, I'll link to uh, to noblesse oblige and I'll, I'll link to uh, to the storyteller book as well it's um, got some really nice illustrations by Yugo uh, Solis 
like I'm a huge fan of his art, and I was really happy that uh, uh, he could illustrate it. And uh, yeah, that's um, the it. It's sort of it. it kind of I'm almost thinking it sounds a little bit like the way Lovecraft might have used New England, um, but you know, in a in a different location. You know, it's that uh, um, uh, that that sort of the, the the authentic landscape, but. Maybe, yeah. I, I find it very humorous to think of Lovecraft writing something related to Arabs and Jews because, uh, like, oh my God, the man was so racist. <laughs> well, there's that, but he did have the uh, the Mad Arab in the uh, as the sort of you know uh, as the yeah. as character. Um, but yeah, no, he. Uh, I mean, I'm from New England, and and the the brand the sort of the brand of of racism that that Lovecraft uh, had. Was ve- was a very New England form of it too, so it was very sort of. Um, yeah, I think it was like more scared than hateful. Yeah, it, well, it struck me as sort of like I ca- I call it old Yankee racism, and like Yankee in the sense of like somebody from New England who can trace their ancestry back to the Mayflower. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so like if you weren't English, you know that was sort of the source of the of the of the racism. It 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 was it, it, you know obviously Arabs and Jews would be. Uh, encompassed in that, but so would like Italians, or you know. Uh, yeah, his depiction of Italians is also very uh, xenophobic. Yeah. So, but uh, the interesting thing about Lovecraft is that you know his wife, the one who supported him, she was Jewish, and uh, Bloch, uh, the editor that actually uh, he is one of the reasons his stories uh, survived. Uh, Robert Bloch, the author, uh, he was also Jewish, and if I remember correctly, I think he was also homosexual. So, like, you have this extremely xenophobic uh, person, and the two closest people to him are Jewish. I mean, so that's like this very interesting uh, contradiction here. I th- I think there's a lot. I've, I've that happens. I think. I think people. I think. I think. I'll, I think a lot of times you'll you'll see people have a worldview in, uh, in that way, but then they make exceptions and mm-hmm. on a case by case basis, and uh, and and. And also, I mean, I'm, you know, who knows? Like, I don't, I, I've never really studied Lovecraft that deeply in terms of his personal biography. So I don't know how much of it was also maybe him changing over time, and if if that played a role. But, uh, but, 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 but reading his stories, you you can definitely feel the, uh, uh, you know, the xenophobia in the, uh, in the in the fiction. Um, yeah, and I sort of try to go in the opposite route. So you have uh, like. Each story has a different kind of uh, protagonist. Some are like Israeli Jews, some are tourists uh, from the West. One story is uh, about a Bedouin uh, policeman. Uh, one story is about some talking animals uh, in Egedi. And Egedi is a place where King David uh, uh, hid when Saul was uh, looking for him. It's a mysterious oasis in the desert. So like the story that takes place there, like the hero is, uh, is a goat, essentially. Um, so, like, I try to like to get as many different aspects of the country in the uh, book: and okay. Jews, Arabs, foreigners, animals, tourists, uh, uh, um, even you know illegal immigrants, whatever. Like, everyone is there. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, and and again, I'm going to post a uh, a link in the description below so people can find it. Um, mm-hmm. But. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about your 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 gaming material too, because you've done a lot of game writing, and uh-huh. uh, and so I know most recently you you, you did the uh, the Gorian adventure was it the Turian Gambit, um, mm-hmm. 
and uh and so why don't we why don't we start there and then we'll we'll maybe work our way back what uh, uh can you tell me a little bit about about that that book um yes uh, it's a book it's, it's an adventure it's fairly uh short uh, it's a supplement uh, for the Gore Adventures book uh, published by uh, James uh, Desborough, known as uh, Grimm, probably the most beleaguered uh, person in the role-playing uh, world right now. Um, and uh, the, the thing is that uh, Gore has got like a, gotten a very bad uh, vibe, but it's not really justified in my opinion, because it is a cool setting. It's got like people uh, 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 flying birds, it's got like French called Beatles and uh, Priest Kings. Uh, it's a really cool setting. So uh, it does have like a lot of uh, bondage. And uh, when people accuse the setting of misogyny, I can see where they're coming from, but it's like a small part of the set setting. So uh, the adventure I wrote is about uh, like the characters have to get uh, some item from a nomad clan. It's like very powerful, very warlike uh, nomads. And the thing about the adventure is that it it's almost impossible to steal this item because there are like, always people outside the camp and no matter how strong the characters are, they, they won't be able to defeat all the nomads. Uh, but you can actually win it. Uh, so, but but you have to uh, get into the culture of the um, nomads. So most uh, challenges uh, in the adventure are actually uh, all sorts of uh, uh, how to deal with the culture shock of uh, coming to an entirely different culture, uh, how to um, win all sorts of strange uh, uh, athletic and um, intellectual challenges that may be presented. So there's like some action, but it's more of a cultural uh, adventure. Is that the direction I wanted to take it in? And uh, and so, what about um, the interface zero from Gaza with Love? Is that uh, that was Savage Worlds, right? Uh, yes. Uh, it's a cyberpunk uh, setting. I also contributed uh, like a big chunk of the um, core uh, rulebook. I wrote sections on the Middle East um, and on uh, Russia, on account of being a Middle Easterner who comes from Russia. Um, so it's, it's a cyberpunk uh, setting. Um, like, is there anything specific you'd like me to say about? Well, I'm curious. Like, uh, I mean. I, I, I play in a Savage Worlds campaign and mm -hmm. and I'm just curious if uh, you know you know what what was it like designing for the system did you find it a, a, a challenge did you find it easy was there anything different about working with that system than with others um, hmm. I will say that it was like challenging in any particular uh, way, but it was uh, different because in Savage Wars the uh, power levels are more uh, balanced. Like uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, if you have a 15th uh, level character, then uh, first level adventure is it's just, it's nothing for them. It's not interesting. Uh, in Savage Wars, even if you have a relatively powerful character, um, a lighter adventure can it's first easier to adapt, uh, and secondly, I think it can still be interesting because in such wars, usually you don't get so powerful that like uh, a dude with a gun is just something to scoff at. Yeah. And so uh, I, I said that's like the main difference. Okay. Okay. And um, and and what's the uh, what's the uh, what's the plot of from Gaza with Love? What's the what's the adventure set up there? 
Well, uh, in this adventure, in the uh, future, uh, there's like no longer a conflict between uh, Gaza and uh, Israel. Uh, Gaza is sort of like a free city, a, a pirate heavy heaven, if you will. Uh-huh. And uh, there is this um, Russian uh, woman. She married. Um, she was married uh, to a Russian oligarch. And then uh, they had like his uh, nasty divorce, and she uh, moved uh, to uh, Gaza. She married a local man, and then her child was kidnapped. And uh, she doesn't know who kidnapped him and why, but it seems that like the child was uh, taken to Tel Aviv. So uh, the adventure is like she suspects her husband. And again, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, so like maybe it is him, maybe it's not him, but it's more an investigation, and like everyone could be involved. You could maybe they're like Kurdish uh, spies, maybe it's the Iranians, maybe it's um, the Israeli intelligence, maybe it's some uh, Bedouin. And also, she doesn't want to buy her child to be uh, kidnapped because. Uh, so she had she had a nasty divorce with her husband, but uh, she finds it hard to believe that he would end so radical. But uh, maybe her husband has like some interesting facts in his past that uh, she's not aware of. So that's mostly uh, like the players mostly have to investigate uh, where is the child, and then they have to rescue the child, uh, possibly by force. That's like the action part of the story. Yeah, do do you take any particular approach to investigative adventures? I know there's like a lot of discussion online about mysteries and adventures and how to do them, how not to do them. Do you do you have a a style or an approach? Uh, yes, actually, I developed it when working on my very first adventure, Merlin Ogridge, and I have stuck to it since. Uh, so uh, first of all, um, I always have a timeline. Like the story advance, unless the players uh, stop it, the story advances. Like, every adventure starts with a timeline, because uh, the world doesn't wait for the characters. If, like, if there's a serial killer, they will go on killing. Uh, if someone wants to, uh, I don't know, sell a stolen item, at some point they will meet with the client and sell it. Uh, and I always have, like, a certain ratio of clues and red herrings. Like, always uh, there will be a false uh, suspect. Um, and also, I believe in what you may call the elegant solution. Like... Every uh, investigation adventure ever designed can theoretically be solved uh, without um, making a single attack roll. Uh, also, oh, well, and, uh, so you said every so it it can be it can be resolved without making a single attack roll. Yes, it may be extremely difficult, almost impossible, but in theory, you can uh, understand what's going on without having to fight anyone. I, I think that's a really good. Well, number one, I like the timeline because I use those too. And I, and in fact, I suspect I might have got that idea from you because I remember the title "Murder in Oak Ridge," mm-hmm. and I used to, I used to devour those Dungeon Magazine adventures. And, uh, and I'm like ninety nine percent sure I ran that one. And I know I picked up the timeline idea from somewhere. Um, but uh, but I love the idea of the timeline. But I really like, you know, this notion that. They don't necessarily if they if they can really think their way mm-hmm. through the adventure, they can get through it without actually getting into you know a single combat. Yes, um, I I think that's a very that's like a really good way to to reward players that engage the mystery material. Usually, I don't do it with children because uh, children don't have the patience to like 
write down a lot of stuff and uh, mm. connect things. But when I run run a game for grown-ups, yeah, I think that like smart players should be rewarded. And also, want to add a thing that uh, in like in uh, fighting, the unpredictable element is very fun. Like I hit, I miss. Uh, like a role can be very exciting. But uh, when you're just looking for clues, I think uh, something is just frustrating. Like you want the players to find, I don't know, a bloody uh, a fingerprint, but everyone rolls two on their perception check. And yeah. it can be just be so frustrating for you as a GM because the story gets stuck and it's no one's fault. So uh, like I usually have like uh, certain levels of uh, clues that uh, players receive based on their skills. I don't like to have players roll too much. Okay. Okay. So, sort of, a, um, like Gumshoe kind of takes that approach, where uh, yes, where the, you find the clue, you walk in the room, the knife is sort of staring you in the face on the on the ground. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to to roll to see it. And if you're and if you're if you're a police officer with competent training, you you follow the right procedure yes. and you're going to find the clues. It's that kind of a. The thing about the chance is there's like always, even if you're like genius, there's always a one in twenty chance that you will fail. Yeah. And real life isn't like that. Like a professional policeman will find the fingerprint. Everything is theoretically possible. It's a story. It should be fun. Yeah. A game shouldn't be frustrating. Player, in the end of the day, people play games to enjoy them, not to punch the table. No, and, and, uh, and if you're an investigator, it makes sense that you would have that uh, that that ability to, to, mm-hmm. you know, to methodically comb through the room. And, and... another thing that I like to do is uh, if there's like a series of crimes... Like every crime will be more and more sloppy, so that uh, like smart smart players solve the uh, the crime very quickly to catch the murder like after the first uh, crime. Mm-hmm. But uh, as the game progresses, it should get easier again because while it's it's not always logical, a game shouldn't be frustrating. A game shouldn't uh, punish the players for failing to notice something. So uh, again, return to murder in Oakbridge, which I wrote in uh, 2005. Oh my God, it's like. A lot, a lot of time ago. Uh, like I, I would have probably done some things differently if I made it now. But uh, if you notice, that like every crime is slightly sloppier. Like uh, uh, the killer is more and more um, under pressure. So uh, the idea is that if the player couldn't uh, solve it at first, they, they have a slightly higher chance to solve it after the second crime mm. and so forth. So the story uh, advances and. Um, the players don't get bored. That's the most terrible thing. If your players are bored, it's even worse than they're angry, worse than they're frustrated. Like a boring game is the most terrible thing in the universe. And the timeline can take care of that too. If the timeline is efficiently, uh, you know, ca- leading somewhere catastrophic, then mm-hmm. you know the the game will stay fun even if they don't end up solving the mystery. If uh, if something bad happens, you know, by yeah. by you know twelve thirty the next morning or something. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it also creates a sense of urgency. Like you have to hurry. You you can't take all the time in the world. Which I think is important because that creates a uh, a feeling that their decisions matter. And and mm-hmm. you know they if they if they if they and it can also add to the rolling because if they're if they need to get somewhere but to stop something bad from happening, you know whether they succeed or fail on a roll can can sometimes determine that. So uh, yes. It, it it definitely adds just a whole other level of excitement to the game, um, and uh, and yeah. So what about the uh, like 
so I guess what's your how would you describe your gaming style because I know now people like with all the discussions online people are very conscious mm-hmm. of sort of I'm this kind of a gamer um, but it, but I'm actually having a lot of difficulty fitting you into a box here and I'm curious what your you know what how you would describe your GMing style and your playing style well I try to um, run a diverse set of games otherwise I get bored myself like uh, I can't say that I'm OSR or new wave or something like I, I can see the advantages in every philosophy but like I can run sometimes uh, an old school uh, game like with a dungeon crawl and uh, last year I ran for in one school I ran against the Giants it's a lot of fun it's a great adventure very entertaining uh, but there is like a specific genre that I uh, favor. Uh, I would say that, that uh, usually I prefer villains that are people, not monsters, mm-hmm. because uh, I think that uh, for uh, an encounter to have meaning, it must have some dramatic uh, consequences, not just uh, military consequences. Uh, okay. Like if you're going, going, taking a walk, uh, walking through the forest, suddenly an egg and egg jumps on the ground and tries to eat you, and you know you kill it, and then you go forward. It doesn't actually have any story value. So it's it just, it's not interesting. Like for me, for me as a GM, just uh, whatever, like you, you kill the big bug. No one so uh, I don't have a lot of fighting usually uh, because uh, like when action happens, it has to have meaning. Like mm-hmm. the person you're fighting, you, you have to like feel something. Uh, you have to hate him, feel sorry for them. Um, Maybe uh, like be afraid for your life. I think that my best games had like uh, one common encounter every three or four uh, sessions. Okay, one encounter every three or four sessions. One combat encounter. One combat. Okay. Okay. Yes, of course. For children, I don't do that because children uh, they want a lot of action, mm-hmm. and also like when you play with children, you have to remember the things that like you have done a million times that are already all boring for you mm-hmm. that you've been doing for twenty years. For them, they are new. For, so, for like for you, uh, someone stole our cow. Let's go kick uh, the goblin's ass and bring the cow back. Mm-hmm. Like, that's boring. You know, it's there's there's no twist, there's no drama. It's just but for the children, it's awesome. It's the first time in their life they go somewhere and they fight some goblins and bring back the cow to the village. Okay. Okay. Um, so uh, I have to like always remind myself that when I'm playing with children, I want to be very basic. I want to first like show them the basics the uh, most generic adventures, so when they do see something new, they can appreciate it. And that's a mistake some of my colleagues make, I think, that they uh, instantly uh, start uh, taking the kids on like very complicated adventures before they uh, got a sense of what it is to just fight, win a fight with a goblin. No traps, no twists, just you go into a lair, there are four, four goblins there, and you fight them. And for kids, kids they're, like, they're really excited about it. And I understand why, it's awesome. But after you've done it for a million times, it's okay. We fight goblins again. Wow, whatever. Well, and, and I find. So, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I finished. I was just saying. I, f- I find that that can even apply to like a genre. Like when you first introduce even adults to a genre, you kind of give them the simplest mm-hmm. introduction. You know, sort of like this is what the genre is all about, and then. You know, eventually that's going to get boring. You know, like you could, if you, you know, if you, if you, if you're, if every Wild West adventure that you run is, you know, some some bandit coming into town and taking over and having to, you know, having having to protect the town mm-hmm. from this guy, you know, it might get dull. But that's probably going to be one of the first types of adventures you'll throw at somebody who's never played a western. Um, 
And yes, so... absolutely. It, but it's the same thing with movies, I think. There are like some films that are generic, and like you watch the movie, say, why, why would someone make such a generic film? Then you realize that this film can serve as an archetype, as an introduction. Yeah, but no, definitely. It has to be revolutionary. You need to have some uh, foundation. Yeah, no, it's kind of like uh, if you're, you know, just D&D as an example, like if you're if you're running Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, some of the some of the like, you know, some of the really common things that people might shy away from after playing for a while, like you might not have as many dragon encounters and you might not mm-hmm. have as many dungeon crawls if you start getting into other things, but it's good to always have examples of how to do those well. Um, you know, sort of essential features of of the of the setting. Um, and genre can be kind of like that too with movies. Like you, you mm-hmm. need like you need exemplars of the genre. Um, but uh, what what like how did you get into gaming? Like what, number one, what's the scene like over there? And and is there even where you picked it up? Like were you uh, were you were you raised in Israel or were you uh, born outside of Israel? I was born south of Israel. I was born in Moscow. Okay. Uh, but I came to Israel very young. I was five. So I was mostly raised in Israel, but uh, I come from a Russian-speaking home. So it's like a lot of cultural uh, fusion. Uh-huh. Uh, growing up, I uh, had several Russian-speaking friends. So like, the, I, do, I do have a link to Russian uh, culture. Well, more like Soviet culture. Okay. Than, uh, Russian. Um... But uh, my first interest in Dungeons Dragons came when I was in the first grade. Uh, I picked up a magazine. It was called like Wizard Magazine. It was an Israeli uh, gaming magazine. And there was a picture of Dark Elf there. And I said like, okay, oh my god, that's the coolest thing ever. I have to know more about it. And uh, I went to the library and I saw a book that had a picture of a Dark Elf on it. That was like some time later. I think it was already in the second grade. Maybe later. I'm not sure, but like early on. And uh, absolutely excellent, I picked up Homeland by Robert uh, Salvatore. Oh, okay. And, the, uh, that's the, the Dark Elf book. Yeah, right? the Dark Elf trilogy. Yep. And like I started reading, and that was like the best thing ever. I didn't understand half the things, but it was like the best book ever. And uh, then uh, I met like an immigrant from the United States, a kid, and he told me about Ancient Dragons, and we started trying to play. We didn't have the rules. We didn't know there were rules. We didn't have any dice, but we just sort of tell stories to one another. So there's like, there's no point in my life in which I wasn't interested in role-playing uh, games starting from the first grade. And uh, the first time I actually got my hand on the rules and ran a proper game, I think I was uh, 12, maybe 13. It was like it was before my uh, bar mitzvah, so probably 12. Um, we got like uh, the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, the rules uh, cyclopedia. Mm-hmm. And we uh, ran a Terrible Trouble in Tragedor, which was like the adventure that came with the book, uh-huh. I think. And it actually had the Dark Elf uh, villain. And I was so happy because like I loved Dark Elves. And uh, since that moment, we actually started running proper Dungeons & Dragons games. We had like a revolving table. Uh, every adventure someone else would become the GM. And, and was it a big scene over there? Were you guys just a small group of people and there weren't that many others playing? What was the... Oh, it's, it's a big scene. There's like a, a convention called Icon uh, every uh, Sukkot. Uh, I would imagine that like every day five, six thousand people uh, come to that convention. Mm-hmm. There are lots of role players, uh, lots of uh, fantasy fans, lots of otaku. 
uh, like when you walk into a bookstore, uh, fantasy and science fiction, uh, both in Hebrew and in English, will take a big uh, part of the wall. And uh, a friend of mine actually worked on uh, trying to get Arab kids interested in a role-playing game because, uh, like, the Muslims they have a more conservative culture, so they're less interested, uh, like, in fantasy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They're a little suspicious of that. Uh, so she was uh, volunteering in Acre, and uh, she actually started running games for uh, Muslim uh, children there. So we want to get them interested as well. Everyone wants to play Dungeons and Dragons. Everyone in the whole world. There are no excuses not to play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's very vibrant in Israel. Okay, and you you found that it's it's resonated with them as the. Uh, um... You mean uh, in Acre? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a partial success. Well, she ran the game, not I, because it's pretty far away. So, like, I came, I uh, gave her some uh, tips. Uh, we printed uh, tokens for the uh, NPCs and the characters. And there was some uh, language barriers because uh, she doesn't really speak Arabic and they didn't speak Hebrew very well. Okay. So she had to communicate with them through an interpreter uh, who was their teacher. So uh, from what she told me, the game was sort of a little awkward because every time like she would say something, the interpreter would uh, translate it using uh, made-up words that didn't necessarily reflect what she wanted to say. And then the child would describe what they do. The interpreter would again interpret it, so it was sort of a broken phone. Oh, yeah, I can, I can see that developing, yeah. And we'll get her in time. And uh, I think it's interesting, you, you know, the, the, you know I, I also sort of came came to D and D uh with uh like the Icewind Dale trilogy. So mm-hmm. you know that was that was a uh you know and I, I don't think people, like now, you know that the you know, Drist as a character has been around forever and so but at the time it was like I remember it being the coolest thing. Like the you know, a dark elf with two scimitars was this uh, you know It's it's amazing. Yeah. I still remember the scene where he fights the basilisk. And like it's the first chapter, and I think I read it like five times in a row. Just this description, and he, you know, he casts darkness at the basilisk and uh, attacks him with his, his two scimitars, and it's just amazing. And, and the, when you read it, you want to do those things. Well, and the Dark Elf trilogy is interesting too because it's it's like one of the first D and D books I remember where you know you have like a it's almost like a thought experiment, like what would an evil you know Dark mm-hmm. Elf society be like, and. And it's and it, and some of the answers are very interesting, um, and it's all you know it's all about yeah. that. Yeah, it's a great fantasy. Actually, I realized now that the first book I read wasn't Hamlet; it was Exile. It was Exile. Yeah, I don't remember the. I don't remember the I actual. Or, was that the first book in the trilogy, or did you start in one of the later? I books? started with the second book, and then I read the first book. Okay. Because I remember the Basilisk fight, and then that's in the second book. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've read the trilogy, but I don't remember the, the order that the books went in. Um. But I mean, it's it's very it's a it's actually a very entertaining trilogy. Like, and and what is it? Don't the mm-hmm. first two books take place underground, and then like the the last book is yes. when he gets to the surface. The first one takes place in Menzo Barnzan. Uh, the second takes place in the Underdark, and the last one he actually goes up, yeah. and eventually he meets Teddy Bree and Brunner and you know all the merry fellows. And and then that's when the Icewind Dale trilogy, I think, mm-hmm. comes in. Um, but yeah, and also you know the the guy who wrote that R.A. Salvador, he's from Boston, and so I always, I always, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I feel a degree of loyalty to him based on that too. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so what what uh, 
so aside from D and know you did mention some other systems, but what what are, what are some of the the types of games that you would you tend to gravitate towards? Um, I like Vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing about Vampire is this setting is quite dark, and the darkness is built in, so you can It's difficult to make like a brighter version of it. So it's not something you can run with little kids because the very basis of this world is that you need to prey on people. So while I do like dark games for kids, that's a little bit too dark. But I do run it for teenagers, and uh, but I use like a simplified system, a very simplified system. And um, but it's I've been running it for four years for some uh, teenagers. So uh, it's been going great. And we used to have like a very big uh, vampire game for grown-ups in Tel Aviv. Uh, it was part of the One World by Night. Uh, we had some 30 players. And when I was one of the uh, storytellers, so it was like really awesome. Uh, Star Wars, uh, the Fantasy Fly uh, version, uh, I think it's one of the most fun systems ever made. It's not very well balanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what I love about it is that in most uh, systems, you either succeed or fail. There are many like, degrees of success, but that's it. In uh, the Fantasy Flight uh, Games version of uh, Star Wars, they're like um, Edge of the Empire, the first book is called. Um, every time you uh, roll dice, uh, there are also uh, s- some sort of unintended consequences, which uh, like it really challenges you as a storyteller to come up with what exactly are these consequences are. So like um, in addition to success and failure, you can also have advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. You can have uh, you can also have like victory and despair. So you can have a role which it's successful, but it gives a disadvantage, and it it has despair. So it's well, you, what you want to do actually succeeds, but something really bad happens as well. And that's very fun. It's like, it's really stimulates the imagination, both of you and the players. I think it's a wonderful system. And do you think that that's, that, that the reason the system is good is because like the lack of balance allows that to happen? Or do you think just despite the lack of balance, it's a good system? Well, I think the lack of balance is, uh, it's not intentional, but it's so difficult to calculate odds because it's it's not numerical. Like you have different kinds of dice. It's... And well, the first book is like every time something is first, it's less uh, perfected. So there are some classes there that are just objectively better. Okay, okay. And does that does that sort of thing generally bother you, or are you fine with that? Well, luckily, uh, one of my regular players is an insane rules lawyer, <laughs> and he can't stand to have an unfair advantage himself as well. Okay. So every time for a run a game, I give him a book and I say, "Okay, comrade, here's the book. Boom, read it. If something is not balanced, let me know." That that's and the after way. After a week, to... I would get a report. Okay, I mean that, that's he's, the way. He's to, a genius for that... fixing and things. Sorry, yes. Oh no, I was just gonna say that's the way to to handle a rules lawyer. Like a rules lawyer is a is an asset if used well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can you can you can you can have a rules lawyer occupy all of your you know like handle all of the the left brain duties. That you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that you need. Um, but, and, uh, you know, when I play with uh, kids, I always tell the kids, I'm a human being. I make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. And if I make a mistake, you have to correct me. Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Like, you shouldn't, feel, you shouldn't feel ashamed if, I, if, I, if you think I'm wrong. I won't necessarily agree with you, but I will hear you out. So I sort of encourage uh, even kids to say, okay, this isn't fair. This is not balanced. Or you, may, you made a, a calculus mistake here. I think it's very important. Well, and I find people are more responsive when you 
you know, if, if you did make a mistake and they point it out and you just say, okay, fine, you know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's better than if you dig your heels in and, you know, try to explain why it wasn't a mistake. Um, you know, that yeah. I think getting the, the trust of the players is kind of, a, is an important thing in a game. And if they, if they, tru- if they trust that you're willing to admit you made a mistake, um, you know, that's, a, that's, that, that can go a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, oh, what about, uh, rats? That was another thing we wanted to talk about. Um, I know you would, that was a, that was something you had worked on many years ago. Um, and, yes. uh, you were saying it's, it's, it's essentially done, right? Like you pretty much, it's, it's pretty much completed at this point or, uh, yes, I, uh, unless like some new disaster happens and we had a lot of those. Uh, it should be out next uh, month, at least like the bears should receive it. I don't know when it will be available uh, commercially. Um, the thing about rats is uh, like one of the things uh, I want to do with this game is make a game where um, you don't have a hit point system uh, in any way whatsoever. In rats, every time your character is damaged, it gets a mutilation. And many of those are not really that horrible. So uh, the uh, basic cause of the game is that it doesn't kill, it makes a stranger. Okay. Now, and, can, can you die in the game, or is it pure? You just get mutilated and keep getting more yes, and more ab- mutilated. Yes, absolutely. You can die. Um, you can even die pretty easily, but um, not due to losing hit points. Like, first of all, some mutilations just kill you outright. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're playing a rat and a human steps on you, yeah, you're gonna die. Okay. Uh, but uh, also, there are like thresholds. You can have so many mutilations before your character just become unplayable. Mm-hmm. And also, some mutilations reduce ability traits. So, like, uh, you have an ability trait called survival. And if some mutilations reduce your survival uh, to zero, uh, your character just uh, dies. Okay. Uh, and then you have the mutations. Like, uh, from time to time, you, you roll around the mutation. Your character mutates over time. And if you roll a mutation which uh, corresponds with the mutilation you have, the mutation becomes much more powerful. So uh, playing a terribly mutilated character is more difficult, but it also sort of um, grants you potential advantage in your uh, character advancement. And uh, and what's the basic premise of the game? Uh, is it uh, and, and and well, yeah. What's the basic premise of the game? Uh, the basic premise of the game is that uh, one day rats remember that they're sentient, they can read, write, talk. And uh, they have a prophet called E.E. And the prophet convinces them that uh, they were created in the image of God. They created civilizations. They wrote all the books. They wrote the Bible. They created all the art. And humans just stole the civilization, uh, erased all their history. And like humans basically stole the universe from the rat. Mm-hmm. And God is a rat. Uh, rats are created in his image. And like every time someone says that uh, humans were created in the image of God, he is blaspheming. Uh, and this uh, prophet goes about the world. He uh, creates all sorts of different red cultures. And each red culture is like a very vicious parody of some human culture. And um, these cultures are like very belligerent also against one another. And then the prophet departs and uh, the rest declare sort of a holy war against humanity. But they're mostly busy uh, backstabbing one another, stealing from one another, uh, blaming each other for not actually advancing in the war. Um, and generally being uh, nasty. And uh, the thing about the game is that uh, characters, as they advance, they become very strange, almost unrecognizable. Uh, as Red can get all sorts of weird uh, mutations, can uh, go into the dream world. It's a very insane uh, game. Um, and 
like again, uh, I spoke about the mechanics, but from the fluff uh, standpoint, one thing that uh, characterizes the game is hypocrisy. Like in this game, you have to be a hypocrite. It's a very big part you, of the game. Like, oh, you have to be a hypocrite. The, yes, all the cultures uh, depend on colossal hypocrisy, and it's actually built into the game. Like every culture is utterly different in the way it shows itself to the world and the way it actually is. Like uh, they're like these uh, corporates, which are corporate rats. Mm-hmm. Oh, the game is full of bad puns. So I apologize in advance to people who don't like bad puns. Um, so uh, they're like the corporates, and they're like, we must destroy the human world uh, financially. We must infiltrate into their banking system. We must uh, destroy their currency. And in practice, what they're doing is actually they're doing business with humans and are making a lot of money. Okay, okay. And, and uh, there are the uh, like uh, the rats. Uh, that are like uh, they're like sort of like Vikings. They have to go on raids and they have to uh, kill uh, humans and save the environment because humans they're like environmentalist rats. And in practice, what they do is just they steal alcohol because they like to get drunk. Okay. So and... in the game, if you actually want to do what you're supposed to do, your main opponent will be just the insane hypocrisy of all the rare cultures you have to deal with. And and you said this is going to be available next month for the backers, and then presumably available for other people after that. Uh, I really hope so. Yes. Um... As I said, I actually got the final file today. I'm going to go over it, and if it's fine, then, uh, yeah, there should be no problem. And uh, yeah, that's all, publishing is always uh, uh, a very slow process. Um, Agonizingly it, slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have the, by the time it comes out, you, you know, the, 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 you know, it's something that you like have been, you know, you were, you were, you were enthusiastic about two years ago sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those sort of things. Oh, um, I'm still very enthusiastic about this game. I think, uh-huh. like, it's been great fun writing it and, um, I, I think it will be a fun game. Do, now, did you have, I, I know when you, when you first started it, you were posting a lot of pictures of, of actual rats. Did you have a lot of pet rats at the time that you were writing this or was that just something that you, you just, you, you had rats on hand for the pictures? Actually, these rats uh, belong to one of my employees. Uh-huh. Uh, she at the time she had four uh, rats, who sadly passed away since then. But every time I come to visit her, the rats would like instantly run and climb on me. Okay. They were like very. They, they were like small dogs. Basically, <laughs> they behave like dogs. <laughs> like you could throw stuff and they run and fetch it. They were very friendly. They like to be pet. Uh, so she just took a few photos of me covered in her uh, rats. <laughs> I love rats, but I don't have any rats of mine. Okay, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, I wasn't sure if they were pets or not when I saw the pictures, but um. Uh, yeah, they're pets. They're fancy rats. They're not feral rats. Okay, um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I've had you here for like an hour. So, is there is there anything else that I haven't brought up that you want to talk about, uh, or any any uh, any of any of your uh, books that you'd like uh, to draw attention to? Um. Well, as I said, Noblesse Oblige is my latest novel. I'm very excited about it. It's my first novel. Uh, I've been like, writing for years, but it's the first time I actually completed a novel. And uh, the thing I love about this book is, uh, while working on it, I was surprised myself with how the story turned out each time. Because basically, uh, my approach was, uh, I'm a GM, it's a campaign, but it's got only NPCs. I was basically running a game with only NPCs in it. Uh, and there were like uh, one time when uh, the protagonist was in a bind, and I said, "Okay, so like I, I, right now I'm looking at the player, and I have absolutely no idea what I should do. Like I have invented a challenge that I, oh, I don't know how to solve it. I have no idea how to approach it. 
and actually uh, started asking uh, my friends, like, what would you do in this situation? They're like, you're writing the book, you can do whatever you want. No, no, but no, I don't want to cheat. Like, I invented this problem and I want to solve it or not, you know, maybe the protagonist will lose. I don't know. Like, you know, a book doesn't have, have a happy ending, like some books have a bad ending. Just tell me what would you have done. And like uh, the final encounter is actually something that um, is inspired by like telling someone, okay, so that's so difficult. I have no idea what to do with it. Like I have uh, driven myself into a bind and uh, I think like the final result pre- uh, turned out pretty uh, nice because like I-, I was surprised myself to avoid stereotypes and um, actually like run again with myself. So. And I, I repeat it like several times uh, now, but that's, that's like for me the most unique and enjoyable uh, part of working on this uh, book. Okay, but no, I, would, I would of course love to hear the opinions of other people. And I mean, and it sounds like it's starting. I mean, I, you know, I saw a couple of reviews on Amazon, and I mean, it, like I said, it came out with the twenty eighth. So, so yeah, hopefully week. we'll start we'll start getting uh, we'll start getting uh, some feedback there. Uh, mm-hmm. I. I, I I was able to read the first chapter before this interview, and I'm going to actually order the the a hard copy of the book because I like to read things in print when I sit down to read them. But um, but I think uh, it sounds like you have a the thing that's that's in, that you're saying that's intriguing me is that it sounds like you were willing to surprise yourself as the writer, and so yes. I'm not necessarily going to know as a reader, okay, this person's going to survive because they're the main character, or they're going to get what they want because that's how it's supposed to play out, um, which I think makes for a more engaging and interesting story. Um, mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write it? Um, a lot, because I was working pretty uh, slow. Like, uh, there was no deadline, I was just working my own leisure. And uh, in the meantime, I had my day job. Uh, I had several uh, writing projects. Actually, there was a hire to work on, so they had higher priority. I would say around two years. Okay, okay. That I mean, that's not uh, too long, really. For was it was a two hundred and sixty pages or something. Yes. So I mean, that's not that's not too long for that amount of time. I think, or for that many pages. I think a professional writer will probably do it much uh, faster. But I, I was in no hurry, and also, as I said, there was like one part was I got completely stuck. I just I had absolutely no idea. What reasonable thing the character can do at this point? So that was like a pretty long break when I actually started uh, badgering uh, people. Okay, what would you do that situation? Nah, that wouldn't solve it. What would you do? No, no, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. The villain is way too smart for that. Uh, and how how would you say like what? I mean, I know you said you wrote it kind of in the style of a GM, but well, I mean, obviously it's still a different medium. So was there yes, of course. W- 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 was there a difference in the process? Was there uh, uh, you know, was there anything you had to, any other skill sets that you have to draw on when you're when you're writing a book uh, versus writing yes, game absolutely. material? When you're writing a role-playing uh, supplement, you want to be as clear as possible. Like, uh, language is the vehicle you use to uh, transfer the idea in the clearest, simplest form to the reader. Uh, when you're writing a book, you want a language itself to be interesting. You want to, like, the language is one of the tools you use, to convey mood, to convey tone, to uh, uh, control the pace. So uh, like the way I see it, a campaign setting is basically 100,000 words of exposition. Mm-hmm. And the players are uh, the, those creating the story. Uh, it's completely uh, static. Like so you describe... Oh, go ahead. You describe uh, a certain setting, you describe all the problems, 
And that's that. And he, the story moves through time. So, uh, first of all, like the language you choose is very important. You control the pace, you control the mood through the use of language, which becomes much more uh, important. And also, uh, I often had to resist uh, giving too much detail because uh, there's, no, there's no such thing as too much detail in a campaign setting. Like, the, the more detailed the campaign is, the better, in my opinion. Yeah. Because, like, if you describe a small village, maybe the GM will use it someday. I don't know. Who knows? Like, you had the Reveloft uh, core setting, and then you had all the gazetteers. Yeah. And I actually used a lot of data from the gazetteers. Like, there's, like, this small tavern on the edge of a small village, on the edge of a forest somewhere, and at some point, the players actually reach the spot. And I, yeah, I don't have to invent it. I actually have a gazetteer for that. And in the novel, you have to say, okay, stop. You will never use the information. No one cares about it. It doesn't matter what happens, like, on the other end of the universe. Just let it be. Okay, you know that that makes that makes total sense. The um, I like I like the distinction you made between exposition, sort of like a role playing game is kind of like a setting is it's kind of all exposition, and yes. in a novel that's kind of you're kind of you're trying to hide the exposition, I guess is maybe mm-hmm. a way a way to put it. Like you like it seems like an, 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 when, as a reader when I'm reading a novel, you know, the, especially now, you know, the, the exposition is something that generally is avoided. Uh, or concealed in Heinlein you know. was genius in that regard. Uh, like he would get you into his world without explaining much. He would just understand the setting from what from the action, and that's what I try to do. Okay. I mean, Heinlein is a genius. Yes, I, I don't presume to be anywhere near his level, but that, that's the direction that I wanted to uh, go in. Okay, like yeah. the, the readers to understand the thing based on the action, based on the characters, without actually explaining anything. No, and he, he I mean, he, he, I. I, I uh, Starship Troopers is still one of my favorite stories of all time. I, uh, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, it's, it's a and it's 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 one of the it's kind of um, you know it's got it, it's one of the cool things about it is is you you sort of uh, it, it can be really difficult I think to keep keep a reader's interest through the kinds of things that he's he's having you tour like just the you know like he he, he literally puts you in a classroom. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah. you're, you know, to, 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 to make that interesting is, is, is not easy. Um, but, but I, I, I think it's, you know, through the techniques that you're talking about there. Um, so would you okay, say that his ideas are so bold, so provocative, like he's so challenging. Like I wrote most of his works in high school and I think my political consciousness was mostly, uh, like fashioned mm-hmm. by Heinlein. And the interesting thing is, is some of his books actually contradict one another, like the, Political philosophy of Starship Trooper is very different from the political philosophy of the Moon's Harsh Mistress. Well, but both of these books, they really make you think. Yeah, no, well, that's the good thing about him. You don't, you don't even necessarily have to agree with him. Like, if it's just the fact that he he presents a very compelling case for what he's trying to say, mm-hmm. and so you you're forced to engage the the discussion. Um, you know, I, I like like Starship Troopers was kind of outside of my you know like where I might be politically, but I found it I found it fascinating. And and I found I found his political arguments fascinating. Um, I think it's outside like almost everyone politically is because it's a very it's in other day it's, it pre- presents rather totalitarian uh, you know, but it makes like if if you have a liberal outlook it makes you like think about it more like okay I'm liberal why am I liberal yes like yeah and if you have to defend your position it also affects you. So yeah, that's he, that's a wonderful thing. And I remember him making pretty solid historical arguments in that book you know, mm-hmm. when, he's t- when he's trying to explain and justify the society he's talking about and so you have to actually think about the history that he's he's thinking about and 
and so I don't know. I just I just found it compelling for that reason. But so would you say he? But he was a big influence on you as a writer, obviously. Um, l less like in his actual stories, but more like in the way that he so so discreetly uh, immersed into his uh, setting. And were there? And and obviously Dune is another. Were there any other writers that were influential? Well, Roald Dahl. Uh, Charlie Chocolate Factory. Like I'm not saying as a joke, it actually affected the way my story is constructed. The... Uh, there's like this location. It's a fairly small location, but it's full of stuff. Uh -huh. Very cool stuff. And they're like these uh, very different people with very clear uh, characters. They're almost stereotypes, and uh, they have the different objectives. Well, in Charlie Chocolate Factory, they have the same objective, but in my book, they have different objectives. And as the story progresses, uh, all sorts of stuff happens to those people. Okay. And like in my position, because most of the stuff, the actual things they do to one another, uh, not uh, just the environment. Mm -hmm. But I actually really like that uh, structure, and I'm surprised that there like, aren't more books that use uh, this kind of uh, meta structure. Uh, I think it's a terrific book. It's it obviously it's for children, but it's a very nice book. Um, so. I mean, it's, it's 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 obviously. I mean, it's it's resonated with a lot of people, and I mean, mm -hmm. so so much. I mean, there's a you know, there's a there's a a, a, a role playing adventure based on it, even right. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, uh, now uh, yeah. Actually, so, I, when I read the book, I was thinking, okay, that's a dungeon crawl. I'm reading a dungeon crawl right now. That's a, yeah, no, I I can totally see it. Like once when that adventure came out, I instantly made the connection. When I was reading it, it it it, it totally went over my head, but. But a lot of that's that's often the case. Like you know, you uh, a lot a lot of you know it, it, this is very much outside of, of, of that that area. But but uh, I I've I've been reading a lot of uh, old uh, sort of Chinese legends in this book called um, Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio, and it's just little tiny mm -hmm. like you know you know some guy went to the market and he he had an, a weird encounter with a, with a guy who was half goat or something, you know, like just, you know, just like, like little uh, really condensed stories or occasionally the stories will be like maybe 20 pages or more, but they're usually pretty short and to the point. And I found that they were really great source material for adventures. You could, you could just randomly flip to an, uh, a story and it was like a ready-made adventure concept uh, that you could just, you know, uh, if you didn't have an idea that day for your game, just you know, randomly pick out a, a story in the book. And I felt the same way about the Arabian uh, Nights, like uh, the One Thousand One Nights. Almost every story is a person gets in trouble, then they have to get out of this trouble. That, that's basically an adventure hook. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. That's that, that's that's a really good example. I, I think that kind of that kind of structure works really well for for gaming inspiration and for. Uh, you know, just get, getting, you know, uh, I don't know, ideas that are like they're really accessible. If you're a gamer, they're really accessible. I think if you were like a movie director or needed a cool concept for your movie, um, they just kind of mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, you know, the, 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 the older I get, the more I go to stuff material like that for for inspiration. Um, but uh, but yeah, so again, uh uh, Noblesse Oblige, and it's uh, it's available on Amazon and uh, and in bookstores, and and you know I'll post a link in the description below, and uh, and yeah. So uh, any any closing remarks before we head out? Closing remarks. Um, yeah, 
game, like make sure other people game, make sure everyone games, everyone should game. Game is cool. All right, I, I go got... to the Amazon, go to the Amazons, uh, find uh, some tribe that has never heard of Europeans, teach them to game. Like everyone should be gaming. And uh, I think I can stand by that. So we'll uh, we'll yes. end there. And uh, and again, it was great. It was great having you on. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I think that uh, I think that you know there was we we got we, we covered a lot of ground. Um, oh yes, absolutely. All right. So so we will be back on on. Um, I think I have a, an iClaudius discussion coming up on Sunday, and uh, you know next week we're going to get back into our Wusha weekend. And so until then, I will talk to everyone later. Bye.